Murdoch University, Alumni After Dark, powering your mind. Hello After Darkers, welcome and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Alumni After Dark. My name is Samantha Osborne and today I have a very talented alumnus, Dr. Patrick Jones, and he is here to chat to us about an important subject, our mental health. Welcome Patrick and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And so firstly, before we start delving into the mental health subject, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I did a uh, a doctorate at Murdoch University, and prior to that I did a master's in clinical psych some years ago. So that's sort of the the psychology uh, space with with Murdoch. I did some undergrad work at UWA and uh, a theology degree over in Melbourne. So it's really that combo, you could almost say, that I've been interested in, which is the research environment, but also the, you could almost say, the, the phenomenological world of, act, of experience and trying to bring those two together and, and take that back out to the community, whether it's commercial, academic, you know, an individual who wants to improve their, their experience of, of well-being, quality of life, and be like a little bit more of a, a skilled campaigner in the world. Amazing. So you uh, have a wealth of knowledge to share with us, which is awesome. Thank um, you. Somewhat. <laughs> we'll, we'll, fig- we'll figure that out. Huh? Um, so I would like to start a conversation around an issue that I think we'd all agree has impacted our mental health in one way or another, uh, and that's the pandemic. So have you seen a rise in clients uh, seeking psychological help, and why do you think that is? Um, well, it definitely ha- has been. In fact, I am... Um, was chatting to the ABC only a few months ago about that specific issue because it's been, you know, experienced, you know, certainly in Perth, perhaps you know, around Australia for sure. Um, I think the the main issue is obviously when there's a, a a change in an environment like the pandemic has changed people's situations, and so there is typically a, a natural and adaptive threat response to to that. Uh, we would call it perhaps the adaptation reflex is the way around that. So if you've got a, an issue which is uh, affecting you, you go into that very adaptive response. But the thing with, I guess, the pandemic environment is that it's been quite chronic. It's been intermittent, but but in a sense chronic. So normally a, a single, what we call a single, single T trauma or a single event would take eight to 12 weeks to adapt, to return back to baseline. Uh, but with this, it's been on and off and people have, in a sense, not had that that reboot time, that sort of effort recovery time. So that's one of the issues I think that, that's been at play here. And the other also is the the model of well-being, really, which is in a sense what I might call event-based well-being versus inner well-being. And so if events do occur that are problematic or challenging and our well-being is resting on them, you know, and they're in this sense they're continuous, then our well-being is certainly going to be taking a hit on a continuous basis. So that's part of I think what the discussion needs to also centre around is is how to support people with a different model of well-being so they can manage crises. Right, interesting. Um, I understand that uh, your program was recently researched, researched here at Murdoch University. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, we were uh, quite fortunate because uh, we uh, put a proposal into a local council, it's Coburn Council, to support us offering a a public program of mindfulness for free to the community and uh, so they they uh, offered a grant for that and we were able to 
have it as part of a COVID recovery re response. And I'm not sure, you know, what else is been been done in terms of Perth or Australia in terms of evidence-based mindfulness programs but you know, we, we ran the program uh, we actually split it into two different groups so we got some analysis done because we had an opportunity because I was an honorary research associate at Murdoch to be able to uh, you know kind of get that academic element to it as well so it was a really well re researched uh, evaluated program and, and great results. What was really lovely is that people genuinely were positively affected and you know all our graphs are all going in the right directions. The, the, the well-being ones are going up and, the, and the, the distress ones are going down. So really that's what we want, want to see. And I think what it shows me is that, well, obviously we know mindfulness programs work. This was um, the mindfulness-based quality of life and well-being program that I, I created through my doctoral research and we, we run in the community and for, for companies, but uh, what this, I guess, highlights is that if you can offer that in a time of crisis where people are managing these things, that, then it makes a big impact. And I think in terms of government policy, I'm really quite strong on giving input in terms of how, you know, government funding and where it can, in terms of its policy, where it can allocate funding for the well-being of the, of the community. And I think um, Bhutan has their, their gross instead of gross domestic gross dom domestic product it's um gross happiness product or something like that uh, and, it, and they focus on how we can improve the happiness of our citizens not just um you know that getting that profit and loss thing or, or managing budgets i think we could take a leaf out of that very simple society but it's a, it's a government structure that that puts that as a priority uh, and i think this is these kinds of programs are an example of that so what exactly is inner well-being? Like, how would you describe it? Yeah, well, there are um, different terms, in a sense, for, for well-being. You know, there's, there's quality of life, there's subjective well-being in the research, life satisfaction, happiness, well-being. Often these terms are quite interchangeably sort of linked and spoken about as the same thing, but they actually, what underpins them are completely different constructs. So uh, very generally... Um, I like to distinguish them between event-based well-being and inner well-being. So an event-based model, which is the dominant paradigm, uh, primarily aims to you know, optimise pleasure and minimise pain. That's really the, the, the standard approach. And the goal in that model is to get as good as we can in important areas for our life. So... Um, for example, self-esteem in the research in that is that the number one predictor of self-esteem is social comparison. So, um, but then there are other things that are, are important to us. So for example, if sport is really important to us and we're no good at it, then that is significant, has a significant impact in terms of our sense of self-esteem or sense of self there. But if we don't give a damn about it and we're still bad at it, then it's okay. Uh, it doesn't really affect our self-esteem. So it's an interaction in a sense between um, you could almost say schemas or cognitive frameworks and actual objective data, what actually is happening out there in the world. But that event-based well-being model aims to, the goal in that is to get as good as we can or get the best results we can in areas that are important to us, that load highly for us, and to minimise the suffering or the pain or the, or the, or the losses, profit and loss model in, in you know, economics or business, to minimise the losses as much as we can. And, and if we can 
increase our net profit, if you want, you know, so that we're doing really well and our expenses in life are, are low, then people tend to report a sense of, you know, good quality of life. And, you know, again, um, studies around the world, like 140 different nations were assessed on, on these kinds of questions, and the average was about 7 out of 10 in terms of how happy are you. Um, and there's obviously a range, and but that's what we'd perhaps call a trait, a trait, a score. People's state continually changes based upon events that might happen, but their, their trait is that. Um, the only issue with with that is a lot, lots of elements to this, and I'll just name just a few that are relevant here, otherwise it's going to be research day all day. <laughs> but um, as, essentially, uh, the research found that that a large portion of where that well-being comes from is my cognitive state, is, is how I view things versus how they actually are. And initially the research was looking at all, you know, what are the important areas that we can find, uh, you know, that are predictive of quality of life or well-being. You know, and they're looking at, you know, the work and the relationships, and the money, health, and leisure, these sorts of things. Um, and they consistently found really low scores for individually and collectively, you know, 8% for all of them together, up to 15% for all of them together. So even if we just round it up to 20% to be generous, where the heck is the other 80%? And then the research started exploring the subjective realm. So you could say those were the objective things, the actual factors in life, how my work is going. And then the shift was to the subjective realm, which is how do I think and feel about these objective factors and that's where the other 80 was and it's like aha uh-huh. right so it's really all about it's all about me it's all about how I am in regards to that stuff so I think that that um, segues really nicely into the critique of that paradigm which I would probably call the inner well-being paradigm which is that if it's if it's so much about me um, then that's really where the attention should be. And, and yet when you look at economic policy and, you, you know, um, even like, say, town planning or so on, like, you know, what, where are the parks and where are the whatever else? It's like, to what degree does quality of life and, and well-being affect policy? And it, often it's, it's not, these are not the factors that are looked at. And I think really where attention needs to go is to to that inner experience and trying to, in a sense, teach citizens uh, how to have a more responsible mental process rather than just trying to improve, improve the life conditions of, of that individual or that society through, you know, and again, it links to everything, Centrelink and every possible way in which um, government bodies, in a sense, are trying to assist. Um, to some degree, it's, they're often quite ignorant of this research. And hence, the large portions of the money are, are, are apportioned to factors that play a very small role. Uh, they, they feel and sound responsible. You know, it's like as a parent, you would want to look after all those things for your child, for sure. So it's not like, it's not um, throw the baby over the bathwater. It's not like we now become extremists and ignore that. It's they're, they're a critical part. You know, but in a sense, the mother load is at the individual um, internal experience. So the inner well-being model or the inner well-being experience is even if we to go to its full extent of that 80% if it's about me and what happens inside of me 
people can also experience a sense of self even beyond those crazy thoughts and beyond the crazy feelings that come from those crazy thoughts and if they're strong crazy thoughts the physical sensations that come from those thoughts because thoughts often cause feelings and strong thoughts often cause feelings and sensations so the inner well-being place is almost resting underneath all of that as well so not just underneath all of those life conditions but then even underneath all of my responses to those life conditions and underneath all of that there I am <laughs> inner well-being inner well-being so um inner well-being um and mindfulness they're, they're things that can be described but it's it's hard to do it's hard to have those things and you know why do you think that is um well i guess it also depends um on the level of practice and where i put my time so for example uh you know let's say i'm awake 16 hours a day uh and um, I'm a committed practitioner, so I'm going to do 30 minutes of meditation or mindfulness practices, present moment awareness, say half an hour a day. So that leaves 15 and a half hours left for neurotic thinking and, and an annoyance at why that 30 minutes doesn't do the job. And I think that's pretty much the, the answer is that it's, it can do the job, but if the rest of the time we're overturning the results through going back to um, that type of rushed, worried thinking, whilst during that 30 minutes we're trying to to stop thinking, it's it, the momentum is just completely in the opposite direction. There is a way around this other than trying to do eight hours of each of them <laughs> and trying to live a life. Um, and that would be to practice what we call present moment awareness. And that's really where John Kabat-Zinn and the mindfulness movement in the, in the 80s and so on uh, kicked in. So, he defines it really as paying attention in a particular way is mindfulness and he describes it as on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally and that we can do the rest of the time so it's more like the meditation or the mindfulness approach to make it easier can be can I just bring my attention to where I am what I'm doing which is kind of the old Yoda criticism of Luke Skywalker <laughs> right and it's like you know I'm ready, I'm ready to, to fight Darth Vader. And he says, no, basically, I'm not going to do the voice. Um, but <laughs> basically, he says in paraphrase, clinical language, um, no, you're not. Um, you're always looking to the horizon, never on, on where you are, on what you are doing. You know, like that's master speak. You know, like that's, it's like you, you, you want to face that, you can't even be here first. And of course, that was a pivotal changing moment. And, and then he starts to lift up ships and do cool things. So uh, <laughs> a nice, in a sense, um, first principle, even from a mastery place, is can I bring my attention to the present, to the present moment? And then on top of that, can I have a non-judgmental or a neutral response to that, which then allows me to be able to experience that moment, as we would say in mindfulness, um, response freshness in a fresh way, because it's a new moment. And often what happens is that we've got a queued up response to that moment uh, once we see it as familiar and then in come all the schemas or the filters about that moment. So mindfulness is about, in a sense, putting that filter on hold and seeing if I can experience that raw moment. Again, the research they talk about prim primordial processing and secondary processing, this 
this um, secondary processing is, is the editor's view about this moment all the time. Commentary, commentary, negative, positive, neutral, irrelevant. Blah, blah. That kind of more primordial or primal, the primary processing is more just taking in the full moment as for what it is, which is um, continually changing and in a sense fresh. So that's not a bad foundation, present moment awareness, to start to build the skill of mindfulness. Uh, and then, of course, there's so many other skills that we can layer on on top of that, all the way up to the, you could say, the end point of you know, what I call clear mind and open heart. But the clear mind <clears throat> kind of mastery level is what I would call thought suspension, it's, which is the ability to literally just slip the mind into neutral and it just rests because it's not needed at this point in terms of thinking. It's still processing, so we want to distinguish processing from thinking. Processing is going on and processing my whole environment, but there's not this literal verbal thinking going on, this scrolling of unnecessary narrative. It sounds heavenly. Yeah, totally right. <laughs> Parked and neutral, optional. But when we think about the body, it's just we, the body can be parked when it's not used and it's watching TV or it's whatever, it's doing nothing. Well, I see the body and the mind as simply vehicles for who we are. And, and the thinking like the body, or the mind like the body, can also be parked. Because sometimes thinking is just not necessary. Like I want to experience, say, I want to really look at this beautiful piece of art or something like that. And I, I don't want to always just do my critique of, you know, juxtaposition and negative space. And I can actually just get that moment of just... That's primary processing, and we should have that as a facility. How does exercise help mental well-being? Yeah, <clears throat> well, um, I'm, I'm glad you asked actually because I've been focusing a lot on the mindfulness uh, bit now, and I don't want to, in any way, underestimate the role of of the you could call them the, you know the life domains. So some of the top five that, that you mentioned, one of them that make a difference here, you know, would be you know, work, relationships, money, health, leisure. You know, those things, you know, need, to, in terms of someone reporting good quality of life, they would need to, in a sense, have those managed or those, you know, what we'd probably call, you know, having a goal, having a strategy, having a time frame to be able to work work through that, and you know, having processes to be able to keep those um, optimal. Um, so, and the health one is, is um is really important because again going back to thoughts feelings and sensations they all load in the body um so you know if we have a again all this stuff everything i'm saying here has been increasingly mapped in in, in the psychological and in the, the neuroscience space and and biofeedback and so on um, but if we have a, a distressing thought it will register in the body and there'll be an emotional sensation and a physical sensation or emotion Exercise, man, it's just it just clears a lot of it. There's this, it's in some ways probably even to counteract some things I've been saying earlier. Sometimes people can go too far with um, highlighting, you know, that it's just it's, um, it's a little bit like um, Gilbert Ryle, the Ghost in the Machine. This this notion that uh, that. Well, that's a different topic, but thoughts in um, in a body, you know, there's this dualism that they're separate, they're as opposed to one one intelligence or one continuum. 
So it's really critical uh, to acknowledge that thought does have a physical impression and exercise simply just helps clear the, the impact of that impression. Um, and yes, I'm a big fan of triathlons. <laughs> um, and I think the reason why I'm, I think it's just they're, they're great because they've got three different sports, you know, the, the, the swim, cycle and run. Um, and now in the industry, it's, it starts, you know, beginner levels all the way up to the Ironmans, which are <laughs> good fun to do. Um, and I mean, I was just saying like an Ironman is like it's, oh, that's what I'm training for now. What is it? It's a nearly a 4k swim, 180k ride, and a marathon, right? 42k. It's like crazy town, right? <laughs> but what's fantastic about it, apart from me physically, like the level you've got to keep training, well, not so much keep training, but like, you know, you there's a certain fitness and lightness that happens with the body when you're doing that. But it definitely it's a mental game, that one. It's no question. Especially when the body's going, no more. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> yeah, that's good fun. Anyway, so yeah, exercise is a really critical part yeah. of offloading. Do mental health challenges and priorities change as we age? Um, to, yes, to, to some degree. In fact, there is um, a lot of research now on what they call the curvilinear relationship between um, well-being and age. It basically means that you'd think as people progress, you know, it should be just completely linear, going up in a straight line. They found there is some like all research dispute about this but there's a lot of meta-analysis suggesting this is the case that well-being is slightly higher in the younger years and the later years and it dips a little in the middle of the years um, some people are contesting this but um, if you're to look at possibly why using again the event-based well-being model is that there are more challenging events to to, to master or to, to achieve during that middle time um, career development, you know, money management, all those kinds of things. Um, so, having said that, in the early years, and some of this is the youth focus now, if, if, if there's not sufficient sort of foundational principles in place in terms of good mental health, then, then that difficult earlier time when the sense of self that's often necessary in the beginning before you could advance and offload it but in the initial sense of self that's built in children it's critical that there is you know there are supportive or conducive conditions to support that uh, and you know one of the difficult areas <clears throat> in terms of perhaps well this is developmental theory but um, conditional versus unconditional regard or stance or view towards a child will direct them because in some ways uh, they're continually getting cues from their environment as to how do I become and if they are conditional in terms of these are the areas where you're supported and these are the ones that you ain't no good at then the sense of self can struggle because it's trying to maximize one and minimize the other and now it's kind of quite lopsided if you've got a very conditional mirror in either the family or, or peer peer group then because that sense of self that needs initially to grow to become robust isn't robust yet it's much more vulnerable to to that which is why i think in some of the psychoeducation now on i believe the event-based well-being model versus the inner well-being model is still quite relevant for 
for the younger group, not so much the primary, but certainly that I would think the secondary um, environments, because that's a place where if you can protect the natural growth of that mental health, then it might have sufficient foundation to be able to then build on that for the final stage when you become less precious about your sense of self and can be a lot more open to even being beyond your, you know, petty self-preoccupations with me or mine. <laughs> um, so we are obviously living in a, a digital world. So what are some examples of how our digital life can negatively affect our mental health? Yeah, well, I mean, there's obviously people will, will know, you know, in terms of the, you know, the light emanation from, from technology, and that does impact um, sleep. That's one of the things that obviously, uh, but then again, if, if that's the flow on effect, if the sleep isn't, isn't good, then, then the recuperation recovery, which is critical, isn't, isn't good. And that's probably underestimated in light from phones and devices. If it disrupts sleep, impacts in ultimately mental health, because again, what they call the effort recovery model in, in, in leisure is that notion that it's basically the sleep model as well. You know, that it is a necessary um, recalibration time. And if it's continually being affected, that, that makes a difference to our resourcefulness. But the other bit is that the platforms, um, they are designed to be addictive because they are commercial platforms. And it's straight radical behaviorism. It's, it's purely um, you reward, you know, the brain centers basically, they get, um, you know, they get rewarded, they release dopamine and then, so you click, click and off you go. Um, but then by contrast, which would probably be fine for mental health if that's the only half of the, only part of the story. The other half of, of course is that when you don't get those experiences, you have the threat response. You know, in cortisol, you could say it gets released and now you're in this continual um, exchange of reward, punishment, reward, punishment, you know, dopamine, cortisol, if you like. And this, it's more the psychological arousal that is continuous or regular. That's that's the issue. It's not that you can't have that, but if you're in that pain, pleasure, reward, punishment cycle, it's just killing the system, you know. And uh, I think that's um, part of the issues that they're they're exploring is is um and ways to be able to get around that. Yeah, it's probably also relevant. Mm. Mm. So what are some processes that we, um, I guess, can implement in our professional um, and personal lives to decrease these uh, negative impacts? Yeah, well, I mean, again, if we go back to, you know, you could use almost standard psychological process, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Cognitive approaches, you know, are in some ways what I've been talking about, just reshuffling, you know, my position from the event-based well-being model to the inner well-being model to to just seeing, you know, am I another statistic of that research that says the number one predictor of self-esteem is social comparison? No, I don't want to be. I'd like to be an outlier, please. I don't want to be on that at all. And that's part of what is happening. And so cognitively, it would be like almost just pushing back against that and going, I can see my self-esteem is, is wobbly here because of that person being with that person and I'm not there or whatever the version is you know, million permutations that will create that threat response and to be able to just um, do that mindfulness stepping back decentering observing uh-huh there's that thought I just had about that and trying to use that present moment 
neutral, non-judgmental approach um, to the moment without having to have all those um, cognitions, you could say. So basically that cognitive bit, just checking where's my reference coming from. Is it external or internal? It's probably a really simple way of putting it. But then if we go to behavioural, um, one of the ones, um, I remember some CEO of some massive organisation, he said really the only question was um, when you get up in the morning, do you, do, you check your, do you check your email before the toilet or on the toilet? And it's like, oh, seriously, man. <laughs> so, um, uh, and I think, so that, you know, segment from that is don't respond right away to all to various things it's, there is some time gap that you can have where you can carve out a life that's a, a real one versus a virtual one uh, so power down for longer breaks essentially um, maybe even reduce the number of platforms that you know people are on uh, would be some of that and also just you know it sounds strange but have some good friends <laughs> there's some people that where there's that connection uh, where there is that unconditional regard so that if your own sense of self, uh, which we'll use at this point, is wobbly, they can mirror for you, look, we know who you are. You're X, Y, Z. Not, you're not this. Not that. Uh, yeah. That's and great. then ultimately That's just keep advice. going past all of that. Yeah. Do you think that the stigma of mental health issues is steadily decreasing? And how far do you think we have to go? Um, nice question. Um, does remind me of, um, of viruses, though. Um, funnily <laughs> enough, why do you think that? Um, only in the sense that when you, if you miss the cause uh, and you suppress the symptom, you get what we call sy- symptom substitution. Uh, you know, this is perhaps in, in problems in this psychological space. Um, it'll come out in a different symptom. But in the virus world, you know, it'll change its coat and you get a different strain. So, um, again, going back to that one thing, you know, the cause really is, is, is where am I getting my well-being from? So, you know, that, I think it's always the first to, to start there that, you know, the cause of self-esteem should not be what the research has in the social comparison. It should not be that external reference. Um, why I'm saying that is because I've also seen in the in intelligence testing arena that there has been you know, a range of very neutral words that have been used over time. In fact, all the insults that we use now, a lot of them came from intelligence testing that were simply classifications for different um, IQ levels. And of course, they were neutral. You know, like um, disabilities became special abilities and, and they became special and then, then, then that became potentially derogatory. Like, it's it's our tendency to um, to do this, if you like. So, I think mental health is is now being um, it is now being included a lot more so. Which is uh, so uh, to answer your question, probably in a simple way, yes, <laughs> it is. Incre- you know, I think the stigma is decreasing. Um, the do we have far to go bit is probably what I'm also addressing. Um, Yes. <laughs> um, so, so I just finished that, I guess. It's that I just see other problems emerging. For example, I, I see a much more militant judgment of now other arenas as a result of that. For example, um, I did a critique of, um, of a, um, 
It was, I think it was a 13-page document of a major organisation, which I won't mention, um, on their um, response to complainants uh, and how they would look after the complainant. Uh, and there was one paragraph in that 13-page document that would be how they would look after the person being complained against. Mm. And it was like, it's fantastic because it's definitely swung to how do we make, give them a voice, critical, you know, because you know, just in all the ways in which that has not occurred in the past. Swung so much now that there's this paranoia about being complained against. Um, and, and it became, become a very uh, isolating or lonely place, that whole experience. So why I'm saying that is because if the people are just as angry um, or just as event-based, you could say, it's just a new cause. And so it's now, you know, it's gone from a medieval issue to a modern issue. So in principle, yes, I think this um, inclusivity uh, for, say, people struggling with mental health isn't it's basic kindness. It's like it's critical, and it and it, it should be part of it. It's just uh, why my, what I'm adding to that is I don't want that to then become you know a battering ram for some other thing that's that's a variation of whatever that was polarized against, if you like. So the the, the platform or always is for me in, in this work and the mindfulness work is connected to that. And a lot of the research now in terms of loving kindness, equanimity is so correlated with well-being, health, social relationships, uh, um, and so on, is that if that's the foundation um, the, the, and the compassion, um, I think that to me is the, is the primary change point, I think. And then when that's changed, then two things will happen. One, in terms of, say, the mental health stigma, that will obviously... Um, the stigma will decrease, but then it won't spawn new problems is what I'm trying to highlight there. We can have that inclusivity without it then becoming a militant inclusivity to the point where others are now excluded in some other form. So I think that's kind of a, a, a critical a critical shift. And one beautiful way to do that, I think, and this is probably just at least finish that question with this exercise, it's a, a common one in the mindful space for equanimity or openness to others is to see um, people in three categories either a friend stranger or enemy uh, you know people that we like people that we don't kind of get on too well with and people that we don't really have any opinion about don't really care <laughs> and to see um, that we in a sense we relate to people in some ways across these three and the, and <clears throat> sometimes people can change camps based upon what they do and the equanimity training is to be able to see that there is this common underlying underlying principle. In fact, I love how that Dalai Lama, when he's interviewed, you know, like the head of this major organisation, uh, and you know, sometimes he says, "People think I have, you know, miraculous powers," and then he <laughs> says, "No, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk." <laughs> and, he, and he says, "You know, my religion is kindness." You know, in fact, in fact, he sees it more as a science than a religion. But I think the fundamental principle behind that is to see people in two forms um, like we said at the very beginning of the interview that they really want two things they want to be happy and they don't want to suffer that's it you know and that's the common thing with someone with a mental health issue non-mental health issue whatever both versions both the doctor and the patient both have that common underlying experience of they want to be happy and don't want to suffer and they're playing this game of doctor and patient 
with according to those two rules. That doctor wants to be happy and not suffer, and he structured his life such that way, and the patient is here interfacing with him with the same desire. And when that commonality is seen, then we don't get this horrific thing of people identifying with their titles and their specialisations, and I've, I've seen very infantile versions of that at the highest levels. And to me, I just, I just see the insecurity of event-based well-being, because if the inner well-being place doesn't need that at all, it, it's just it's absent <laughs> and it doesn't mean it can't play and use all of the skill sets but it's just not um, you know, kind of getting mileage from that personally because there's no gap there to fill so therefore to me that that cause that can be addressed is to say to you know in one's head or in the exercise to friend stranger and enemy and you can do one for each just as this person um, wants to be happy um, they're just like me. I want to be happy. Um, so it's basically, this person is just like me. They want to be happy. Just as I want to be happy, may they too be happy. This person is just like me. They don't want to suffer. Just as I don't want to suffer, may this person also not suffer. I think that's perfect. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Patrick. Um, I mean, this has been such an interesting um, and truly insightful discussion, um, and I'm sure our alumni will find it extremely valuable. Um, Dr. Patrick Jones has also provided some great resources, which you can find in the description section of this episode. Uh, I'd also just like to remind those alumni who are enrolled in a postgrad course that Murder offers free counselling sessions to enrolled students. Uh, for more information on how to access this service, check out the Murdoch website or follow the link in this episode's description. If you'd like to hear more from our talented Murdoch alumni, please subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with the release of new episodes. Thank you for listening, After Darkers, and I will see you next time.